Hi, everybody, and welcome to That's Life, the show where we can't wait to stand online in Hershey Park with the rest of the Gansa Island and wait for our own kettle corn. Good afternoon, folks, and thanks for listening. I'm Miriam L. Wallach, blogger, writer, and general manager here at the Nahum Siegel Network. You can find me here every Thursday at 2 p.m. as I hope to bring you a little entertainment, a little news, and a little relief that the life you are leading is not nearly as wacky as mine. Coming to you from the home of the Nachum Siegel Network, where Avrami is rolling his eyes and saying, ha, my life was wackier this morning than yours was. How we doing, Avram? Thank God, doing well. Yeah, everything all right? Yes, yeah, right, so everything's lay it on fine. Me. Okay, what is, this? The nice what is this? What is this? Last time I would check, that is a bobby pin. Correct. Ding, now, ding, usually... ding. What do I win? So I my win story something. is the story of the missing bobby pin. Um, okay, so I got on the Megabus. And, uh, you know, it was very full, and usually when you get on, I'll try to make it quick, you try to sit, I try to sit next to someone else, I'm not a very big person, I try to sit next to someone who's not very big, so that way we both have a lot of room, and when I sit down, I don't want to mess anyone up at like 1 o'clock in the morning, so I try to make myself as small as possible, okay? So I'm sitting next to this woman, and uh, apparently at some point during the ride, we had both fallen asleep, and... I guess my head kind of shifted to the left and hers kind of shifted to the right and we were both leaning on each other and I woke up and... (laughs) Was your bobby pin in her hair? My head was attached to her head. (laughs) Sometimes I take off my yarmulke when I sleep, but I didn't. And I was like, oh my God. So I'm pulling it out. Oh my God. I don't think she realized it. Hashtag (laughs) awkward. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, this is the kind of situation where really someone could think you're being really inappropriate with them on the bus. So... But she just like kind of didn't really wake up, and then I looked at my yarmulke, and one of my bobby pins was missing. Oh, nasty! And so now there is a woman walking around New York. At least there was for a couple of hours oh with my, my bobby god. pin in her hair. Oh my god! All right, you know what? That's a good one. I give you. I'm not even going to try to compete. Thank God I don't have a crazy story to share this morning. Um, I do want to share my um, my. I, I do want to share what um my morning was like yesterday. I. But uh, let's do some let's let's keep in order here. Let's do some uh, some other stuff first. If you are a new listener to the show, thank you for taking a break from your day to tune in. If you are a returning listener, thanks as always for making us part of your day. If Marion Wallach once a week is just not enough for you, boy, boy, oh boy, do you need help? Do what Ellie Klein does. Friend me on Facebook. Send me an invite on LinkedIn. You can also shoot me an email, Miriam at NachumSiegel.com. I will not respond to you during the show. I'm not being rude, at least not about this. But I will make sure to get back to you afterwards. Also, please follow us on Twitter, Net, and please follow me, Miriam L. Wallach, all one word. Uh, let's go to our favorite segment. What does the fortune cookie say? La, 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 la. Avram, you got a good feeling about this one or a bad one? I'm ready. All right, hold on. Hold on, hold on. Change your thoughts and you change your destiny. All right, Avram just gave that an eye roll. I'm like, all right, not bad. Where's the one I got? The not other? because it was bad, you know. Uh, I think I maybe lame? just because I no, I don't know, just because you, you know I know that already. Oh, oh he's I smarter. To... <laughs> You're smarter than Confucius, um, or the fortune cookie guy. You want this is the one I got a couple of days ago that Nachum and I both were not macabre. Virtue is its own reward. That's the way I felt about that one. Uh, let's take care of some business. Today is video games day. Now, um, I will tell you that my kids have been celebrating this for a couple of months now. I'm happy it has an actual day. You should know, by the way, that I was really, uh, I was recently informed that video game obsession actually has a diagnosis code now for pediatricians and for therapists. And I'm not saying that to be funny, but, um, I joked with my daughter, my oldest over Rosh Hashanah. I said, wow, I hardly recognize you without your phone in your hand. She rolled her eyes and went on her merry way. I do think it is a point for parents to make sure to make their kids unplug 
both from video games and from phones, even when it's not Shabbos and Yuntif. Is there a different treatment if you are addicted to them and you are really good versus you are addicted to them but you just can't get good? I don't know, but that could be next week. That could be next week's um, obsession and topic. But I just wanted to make sure to mention that. Also, tomorrow there's a lot of interesting things to do or a lot of interesting holidays. Tomorrow's Blame Someone Else Day. I'm, I'm always into that, and I also celebrate that more than once a year. It's International Chocolate Day. Bring it. It's Kid Take Over the Kitchen Day, which will make sense because my kids definitely help out Arab Shabbos, even though this is not Arab Shabbos, it's Arab Yom Kippur, so they will be helping with whatever we make to break the fast. It's National Celiac Awareness Day. It's National Peanut Day. Not sure about the juxtaposition of those two things, but we're going to move on. It's Roald Doll Day, so go love a giant peach. If you have not yet, go love one tomorrow. It's Stand Up to Cancer Day. Yes, for a Friday, this is a very, very full day, and as we know, it is Arab Yom Kippur. Um, I just want to take a moment for uh, just I want to take a moment to discuss what happened to me yesterday morning, which was 9/11. I very, very rarely drive to work for numerous different reasons, none of which I need to bore you with. The most important reason, however, is that I can't stand to sit in traffic when I know I could be sitting on the train and be much more productive. Um, I cannot check my email while I drive, or at least I shouldn't, but I can check my email all I want on the Long Island Railroad. And while I should be sitting in the quiet car with actual quiet people, I will take the noisy person sitting next to me over sitting in traffic and being able to, and not being able to be productive. It took me an hour and 45 minutes to get to the Lower East Side yesterday morning from the five towns, which is an exorbitant amount of time. I passed three broken down cars and two car accidents, one of which happened right in front of me, and the other one had a car facing the completely opposite direction from the flow of traffic in which we were going. So I wish all of those people my best. Though the, None of those issues helped the situation, but I guarantee you the fact that it was 9-11 and I was driving into lower Manhattan obviously did not help matters either, and for good reason. So I'm not complaining about the traffic per se. I was listening to satellite radio on my way in, and they were replaying the actual footage from the Today Show from 12 years ago as it went down without interruption. Minute by minute, according to the minute that it happened 12 years ago on 9-11. So you were living it again in real time. It was no less harrowing. And um, it's 24 hours later, and I'm still a little shaken up. But um, it was no less harrowing to listen to people's first-person accounts of what they were seeing while the second plane hit the second tower and having this woman scream on the Today Show that by phone that she can't believe that she just saw a plane fly into the second tower and she's going on and on, and all along the way, the only thing I can see in the background is the Freedom Tower, because that's the direction in which I am driving. And the Empire State Building is to my right, so to speak, and dead straight ahead, pardon the pun, straight ahead of me is the Freedom Tower. And um, I never went to the World Trade Center as a kid, and I never went there as, a, as an adult, because I always figured I would get there at some point or another, and lo and behold... Um, what a fool I was. But there was something both harrowing and um, empowering about seeing the Freedom Tower. Uh, and it was a hazy morning yesterday morning, seeing the, the Freedom Tower in the background as I was driving in. It was and will serve as a continued remembrance for all those lives who were mercilessly lost that morning. And everyone knows where they were that morning. I, I can tell you I know exactly where I was that morning. Um, but I can also tell you that as a person who spent years in the classroom 
having to memorialize and make this day, make that day, 9-11, very important for students, is an ongoing struggle for, for classroom teachers, and it should be an ongoing struggle for parents ourselves. And um, I, I don't want to belabor all of this, but I just want to share one thing that I used to do in my classroom. Because as kids get older and as we get older, obviously there is, no, there, there is less of a connection. There is no way to have them relive that day. And frankly, even the year later, we didn't want the kids to relive that day. You don't want them to relive it as if it was happening. It is, that is a horrifying experience. But what I used to do is I used to buy thousands of plastic cups, thousands of plastic cups, and write down numbers on the board, how many firefighters were lost, how many civilians were lost, how many police were lost, and have my students count out that many cups and number them. And obviously, it was a bit of a fool's errand because you could never complete that. No matter, I bought 5,000 cups every year. You could never do that task within the amount of time of my class period because it just took too long. But the enormity of the number of cups that filled the floor of my classroom always made the kids take pause. And the enormity of the task where they thought it would take them 15 minutes, but I knew that they'd never finish also struck them. And I think it's very important that no matter what we do, we do something to make sure that the gravity and the enormity of the day is never forgotten for us and never forgotten for generations to come. You're listening to That's Life here on the Nachum Siegel Network, and I am joined by my first guest, who is actually also going to be my only guest, and I will explain why. Rabbi Eliezer Zwickler, Ahavat Achim, B'nai Jacob and David, spiritual leader in West Orange, New Jersey, joins us on the phone Rabbi Zwickler, how are you? Good, Baruch Hashem. How are you, Miriam? Good. Gmar Chatimatova. Thank you. Gmar to you as well. Thank you. I let our listeners know that you will be my one and only guest today, and I rarely, rarely do that because, well, I, well hey, it's an important topic, and I think <laughs> it's groundbreaking, and I want everyone to be clued in as to why. And by the way, if I, for some reason or another, if I misquote you, um, you'll please correct me. Okay. Okay. Um... At the end of July, when we were at Champions Gate at the Yeshiva University Leadership Conference in Orlando, Florida, Shabbos morning after davening, there is always a there is always a kiddush amongst the herring and the grape juice and everything else. You and Nachum and Nachum's wife Stacy and I were all schmoozing, and and I don't know that everyone knows this, but I'll make sure that our listeners know that not only are you the rabbi of the shul in West Orange, but in addition, you are a licensed social worker and you are you are a marriage therapist, as is your wife. Correct. Okay. I'm an, uh, a licensed clinical social worker in private practice. There we go. Here in Jersey. Yep. There we go. Okay. So um, we were discussing a lot, a, a lot of different issues, you know, part, uh, particular to marriage and shidduchim and people getting married and so many singles, etc., and dating and whatever. And one thing that you had said is that you, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, please do, because it's based upon this little snippet that stuck with me for the last two months that I invited you on to talk about this for as long as we can, um, is the concept that you and your wife believe that any two people, if they commit themselves to it and commit themselves to each other, can get married. Right. With, with the exception, of course, of, of uh, any, any kind of serious mental health issue. Right. Um, yeah, I, I, and I really do firmly believe that. Um, that's through my experience. Obviously, before I was uh, a clinical social worker, I was you know, obviously the, the rub of the shul here, and just through seeing all kinds of different, um, you know, every couple has their own way of doing things, seeing relationships and just looking at, at marriage in general. And from my own experience, 
that I really truly believe that that's the case. I mean, we're talking about the human dynamic. We're talking about individuals, you know, as I was always taught, uh, being married is the most humbling experience, and it's the greatest honor that we have. The classic Sheva Brachos, um, the classic Sheva Brachos of our Torah is that Ahava, the words of love, comes from the root of the word Hav, and Hav is to give. If a person is, is intent on giving to their spouse, then obviously, naturally, they'll get in return. But if we commit ourselves to a life of giving, and the giving being that we want our spouse to, uh, to, to, to feel uh, that they are being given to, that feel that they're supported, to feel that they're loved, then obviously um, when one is in a state of giving, there is a sense of happiness, a sense of simcha. I just quoted in my Shabbat Shubhadrash, Rav Kook, that Rav Kook had said that people only find, uh, only find simcha or only find accomplishment in something where they see that they are doing something by virtue of their doing it uh, they see that they're making a difference. And if you're giving to a spouse and you see that you're enhancing and you're, you're making someone's life better and you're bringing happiness, you're bringing uh, a sense of stability to someone else's life, then ultimately it's going to bring you simcha, it's going to bring you joy, it's going to bring you happiness. But I think the, the source of where that statement really came from was the idea of if you're humble, if you're humble about who you are and you're humble about um, the way you approach life itself, then ultimately I think that any two people can be married to each other if, they, if they're humble and they want to be. So uh, why do I find this so unbelievably groundbreaking and mind-blowing is because it should appear to me, and you could tell me that I'm being a little too naive and very Pollyannish, but why can't we just get everybody married? Why do I have friends in their 30s who can't find the right guy? Why are there guys in their early 40s who say that there are no right women out there? Why can't we get this, quote-unquote, fixed? And I don't want to use the word shit-off crisis because I find it at this point annoying. Right. But um, And no offense to all the shadchanim out there who are making money off of the word shit-off crisis um, and potentially you know, hurting people who are part of that, quote-unquote, shit-off crisis. But why can't we fix that? Why can't you fix that? Nothing well, look, personal. I, I think that I think there's also look. There's another piece of, uh, of chemistry, right? There needs to be chemistry right. between a couple. They're different personalities. Uh, a person who is uh, a you know uh, has a certain personality, or a person has a certain uh, uh, a certain chemistry to them, or you know, in order to be able to, as part of marriage, also to be intimate with someone, you need to have that connection, that that emotional bond. So that that's part of the equation. I don't want to throw that out as not being part of the equation. Okay. Um, but at the same time, I do believe that that part of the quote quote crisis or whatever you want to call it today is really the nature of the world that we live in with social media as it is. You know, we're constantly looking and seeing everyone else and seeing what we deem as everyone else's happiness. A person, you know, people look at at all the different uh, modes of communication today and they just see about how this person's uh, husband is, now this person's wife is, and how this, and we conjure up all kinds of fantasies in our mind about what it means, what a husband's supposed to be, what a wife is right. supposed to be, and instead of recognizing and realizing that a true marriage and growth in marriage is something that takes a tremendous amount of energy and takes a tremendous amount of time, um, you know, we sort of say to ourselves, well, this won't, that won't, that won't, that won't. You know, I, I always comment that, um, uh, you know, there, there are a couple of letters on, on a wedding invitation that 
that people don't pay that much attention to. It's on the Hebrew side. Right. And it's an ayin, ayin, bays, gimel, or ayin, bays, lamed. Right. And what does it stand for? So ayin, bays, gimel means imbas gilo, right. meaning that the husband is marrying bas gilo, meaning a person who, in a, it, the person who is destined for them. Im, ayin, bays, lamed stands for im bechir libo, mm-hmm. right, which means that the person whose heart, that, that they desire in their heart. And the difference between the two is, let's be real. Uh, let's be realistic. How much could I possibly love a person before I marry to them? Right. There is a potential for love. I remember my Rebbe would always teach us uh, that if you look at the Pesukim, the Pesuk says when it comes to Yitzchak and Rivka, that Yitzchak brings Rivka into the tent of Sarah, his mother. We know his mother was no longer alive. But then it says, Vayikach is Rivka Lola Isha. He takes Rivka as a wife. And he loves her. When did the love come? The love came after he took her as a wife. So yes, is there a potential for love before we get married? Of course there is. I, um, a talk I gave a few years ago at, a, at the OU uh, marriage retreat, I had a slideshow, a uh, PowerPoint presentation. And the end of the, the PowerPoint presentation was entitled, GPS for Marriage. Mm-hmm. That we need to find our destination. What is our destination? So um, when it got to the last slide, someone, uh, people were assuming the last slide was going to be you know, a picture of a coffin. God forbid, that's you know, the final right. destination. But right. the final destination was actually a husband and wife, white hair, probably looked like they were close to 90, without any shoes on, walking on the beach, holding hands together. Hmm. And to me, that's really the goal. The goal is to have a life where one shares experiences, a life where one raises a family, and as one goes through each step of life, they become more and more um, enthralled, more and more excited, and more and more beloved to their spouse by virtue of the experiences that they go through together. Now, does that mean that just anyone randomly could be married to each other? Deep inside, I have to be honest with you, uh, aside from the chemistry factor, I really do believe that. Because if we, if we resolve ourselves to saying, you know, classically the Gemara, has, the Gemara said that it's better for a person to be together, to be with someone, than it is for them to be alone. And uh, that, that's become somewhat of a, a controversial issue in our times. Because, right. you know, when we talk about our idea of happiness mm-hmm. and what does it mean to be happy. And uh, the definition of happiness and the, the classic terms versus the definition of happiness you know, in the, in the secular world that was so much influencing our world today. Um, there are people left and right who just suddenly turn in the middle of their marriage and say, hey, I'm not happy. Right. Well, how do you define happiness? What does it mean to be happy? Does happy mean uh, that I have to be able to, uh, to fill myself with all kinds of uh, physical, materialistic things? Or does happiness mean that I have an emotional bond with someone that I'm trying to build? And I think, unfortunately, too many people give up on that dream of having the happiness, the dream of walking on the beach together without putting enough time and effort in to understanding that it takes years to build that connection. There are, not to interrupt, but there are just a couple of things that I, um, I, I wanted to comment on. You, you, said something, you said something just now that reminded me of something you had said back that Shabbos morning at Champions Gate was that when oftentimes in a marriage, in a relationship, when a couple comes to you and one of them says, I'm not happy, the source of their unhappiness is with themselves. True. Yeah, 
true. And and and. See, I was paying attention that morning, by the yeah, way. I appreciate that. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> you never know these little conversations. Look what happens. I know. I, I, I Next think, time you won't talk to me. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I think that, um, you know, I, I, I like to say it like this. You know, my wife and I, when we flew down to Champions Gate a few years ago, um, we flew back in the morning. For some reason, I always have a shul wedding, like the morning after Champions Gate. Oh. So I'm, I'm always taking that 5 a.m. flight. Nice. And it happens to be the best flight because in Orlando, it always rains right. in the afternoon, so you always get delayed in the afternoon. Right. But, but you we're, can ask, we're, you we're can t- ask Rabbi Brander about that this year. <laughs> Absolutely. <right. laughs> so we're taking a cab. We're taking a cab, sharing a cab together with, uh, with another couple who frequent, you know, traveling all over the place. Mm-hmm. And, and um, my wife and I, you know, we're schlepping our suitcase along. And we see that this couple is traveling with a little carry-on. They just stuff everything into that carry-on. Oh, my gosh. And my wife and I said, that's it. We're done. Right. We are, for now, on going to travel only with carry-on. We've seen the light. Yeah. Okay. And I thought to myself, you know, this is really a lesson for life. And it's also a lesson about marriage. And that is that we all have a carry-on that we bring with us into our marriages. We all have a carry-on of all kinds of things that have happened in our past that we bring into our marriages, past experiences, past relationships. And when I mean relationships, I don't mean relationships with, uh, with other people per se, relationships with our parents, relationships with our siblings, relationships with, uh, with, with different friends that have had an impact on us. And sometimes we think to ourselves that, you know, that doesn't, that, that, that's all in, in the carry-on that we sort of, Threw off, threw, threw off, and we didn't take with us. But the reality is, is that there is we did take it with us, and that is impacting our ability um, to function. Might be in a good way. It could be that we're taking it with us, and we've resolved cer- certain issues. We've worked through certain issues, and it could be that that carry on is still carrying with us different things that we haven't gotten through, and things that are hampering our ability to really be happy people ourselves. And that sense of happiness or that sense of, of a goal of shlemos, that goal of completeness, right. you know, we're being hampered by these, you know, this little thing that I've got in this carry-on that I sort of stuffed in that I didn't necessarily share or want to share. And it's preventing me from myself being able to share who I am, thereby enhancing my relationship with my spouse. I um I recently heard somebody make a comment. I don't remember it was on the news. Uh, I don't know why this would be newsworthy, but somebody was uh, somebody something I was listening to said it's easy to fall in love. The hard part is staying in love. Mm-hmm. Wow. Right. Yeah. Get, get that in a fortune cookie. You're gonna look twice at the person sitting across the table from you. But um but it's true. I mean I you know I used to joke with my husband tongue in cheek that. Um, the the dating part, the courting part, was all like smoke and mirrors. You go, we went to Ranger Games, we went here, we Ranger went there. Games. Yeah, yeah, I know, right? I mean, <laughs> and by the way, I I, I yearn for more Ranger Games. Right. Um, whatever it was, you know, I'm I'm a big sporting fan, so going to that and going out for dinner and doing all this fun stuff, and yeah, the walks on the beach and the picnics and the whole nine yards. Then you get engaged and it all stops. Yeah. <laughs> and um, well, that's really important. First of all, it's really important when it comes to marriage that couples don't stop dating. Agreed. And by the way, that is something that. My husband and I really make an effort for is 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 date night, mm-hmm. and when we don't go on date night, and for whatever reason it gets pushed off, or this person has this conflict, or whatever it is, um, we both feel badly about it, and we know that it's it's missing and it's important. Somebody um, 
somebody also, a mental health professional, once said to me about a, a greater a greater issue, that the reason when you get on a plane that you have to put the oxygen mask on yourself first before helping the guy next to you is that if you're dead, you're no good to anybody else. That's right. And I've said to, I've said to, you know, my husband and I agree, Stephen and I agree, and and I've said to other people, encouraging other couples to do date night is because if you guys aren't strong, if the parents aren't strong, what the heck is going to happen with the rest of the house? Right. You're, and by the way, the most perceptive audience are your kids. They know exactly what's going on. They, they feel the tension. They, they, they have their pulse on the situation. They know before you know that there's an issue. Right. So I, I as, a, as a rabbi, will not be Masada Kedushin at a couple's wedding unless I sit with a couple between four and five times. Right. You said that also that morning. See, I should have yeah. brought that up just to show you I was really, really paying attention. Yeah, and, but... and, and the, the topics that we deal with um, is really we have all of these discussions, and I, I right. say to them and I convince them that as much as you're, you think you're in love now, you right. know, <laughs> being in love is being able to clean up your wife's throw-up when she's six exactly. months pregnant. Exactly. Um, and and uh, and not complain about it. Right. right. Being in love is is being able to go through very challenging moments and walk out of it feeling stronger. Um, you know, love is not something that just happens with a snap of a finger. So you're right about the fortune cookie. Um, I don't. I you know that that's superficial love, in my right. mind. Right. Um, and much of that love has really been created by Hollywood, and mm. and we throw that term around. You know, so loosely. Uh, love you, love you, love you, love you. I love this, I love that. Right. You know. I love my iPad, but it's not the same thing. Of course. There you go. Right. And and um, you know, the date night is is so important. But when I when I sit with couples, um, not only do I talk about the date night, but you talk about as you're living real life. And by the way, date night doesn't have to be, you know, going out to a fancy fancy restaurant. For sure. Date night could be going for a walk in the park together. Right. It could be going and getting a cup of coffee together. It's spending time. Out of your environment together, right? Um, which is which is a challenge, and it's also you know when 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 people have a number of children, and you're always just talking about the kids or whatever, you know, to look at those those common goals that you had in the very beginning when you started courtship, when you started dating, and and to talk about that vision, to talk about your dreams together, to talk about you know as uh, to take take one from Dr. Pelkovitz. Uh, he always talks about every family has a license plate or a bumper sticker. You know, what the bumper sticker or license plate of our family is going to be. Mm. You know, what were our dreams for each, for each other and our dreams for our children and our dreams for what we want in the future. And, and to sort of take stock. You know, every year we come to Rosh Hashanah time and we're taking stock of, of all of the various, obviously, relationships with our Kodesh Baruch Hu, but also relationships that we have with our spouses. And maybe it's a nice time also at our anniversary every year to just stop and say, okay, where are we up to in our relationship? Are we growing closer? Are we growing further apart? And I, I always make a motion with my hands to a couple that I'm sitting with and say, you start off almost exactly together with both of my palms basically touching each other. And over the course of time, what happens is, is that if you're not working on your marriage, you slowly fall away from each other. And you have to invest over the course of time to make sure that you're always together. And I talk about not only... Do I talk about you know the the you know being being uh, husband and wife for the, the first year, and I talk about all of the issues with parents and with in laws, and how that you know how that affects everything. I talk about finances and send them to a financial person to be able to to learn the very basics of of finances. I mean, of course, one of the major major issues that causes problems in Shalom Bayis in the first place are financial issues. But many many of times, you know, if if you're in it together, if you're a team. Then you can get through anything. I talk about um, uh, um, basically uh, the idea of there being um, 
virtual, the total clarity between the spouses as far as mm. um, transparency, as far as passwords for emails, and, and everything is open. Uh, everything is clear uh, between you. And actually, uh, the final session, I even talk about parenting. I always say to them that, uh, that uh, when my son complains about how I, am, how I am as a father, I say to him, you know, when they, when they, handed, when they handed you to me in the delivery room, uh, no one gave me the user's manual. Right. So I always take advantage and, and say to a couple, I know this sounds strange right now. You guys are only getting married in a few weeks or whatever it is, but I want to talk to you a little bit about parenting, and I want to talk to you about the idea of being on the same page and having the same goals and, and, and you know, believing in each other and, and, uh, and, and also the importance of going through the stages of marriage, that when you get to that stage of marriage of now being a parent, that you still have to work on your relationship as husband and wife because so often... You know, you end up becoming parents, and you're focused on the kids, the kids, the kids, the kids, the kids. And finally, the kids get old, and the kids move out of the house, and you turn to your spouse, and you say, uh, who are you? Right. You know, you've changed. Right. You're a different person than you were when we first got married. You know, I'm a different person. And if, if, if we're not having that communication as the kids are growing, then we're growing in different places. Mm. And then we turn around and say, hey, uh, we're supposed to spend the rest of our lives together, but I don't know you. Right. And we don't want that. No. So, so ultimately, you know, getting back to your first question of could anybody be married to each other? Ultimately, you know, if there is that chemistry, if there is that 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 certain natural innate desire, um, and, and that ability to be humble and to give to someone else, yes, I believe that any two people, with the exception of a serious mental health issue, can be married to each other. Wow, you are listening to That's Life here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I am Miriam L. Wallach, and I am joined by Rabbi Eliezer Zwickler, a spiritual leader of Avas Achim B'nai Jacob and David in West Orange, New Jersey, and also licensed clinical social worker, marriage therapist, um, joining us on the phone today, who you would think has already solved the Shadok crisis. Yeah, um, I only wish. If everyone would just walk through your office, by the way, um, it would probably, and I'm not saying that to be funny, I'm just saying that this is such to, this is to me such an interesting perspective and such a different perspective that it's a voice that needs to be heard because it's not that as I explained to somebody who got married in her early 30s and is a very was a very good friend of mine and had a lot was very nervous I said to her marriage is the hardest thing you will ever do in your life Right. You, it is, it is a constant, constant effort. Don't you fall back on your laurels? You think you're just, you know, gliding and you're on autopilot? You're a fool. You right. have to continually work on this. But let me, let me just touch on something that you, uh, a comment that you just made, and something that we've, we've only started discussing. Can we talk about chemistry for a second? Sure. I'm not disagreeing that chemistry is uber important. I'm also not um, discounting all of the um, arranged marriages that seem to work on whatever, you know, or work or whatever that means, mm-hmm. whatever that means for that sect, mm-hmm. it works. Mm-hmm. And I am not casting aspersions on anybody. Right. Not in a million years. What works for them works for them, works for me, works for me. We should all live and be well. Right. Okay. But there begs a question. Can chemistry be cultivated? Can two people, Let's go back to your original premise. Can two people who have decided that they are going to give to each other, they are not yet in love, okay? They are, um, and they are two people who are committed to giving, to being committed to each other, etc. Can they develop or grow a chemistry as years go on, as marriage goes on, after they've already committed that didn't exist beforehand? Does that make sense? 
Yeah, I mean, look, the jury is out. It's all based on the individual, uh, you know, <laughs> obviously, I mean, we all remember, I mean, I remember, um, you know, young people coming to me, guys coming to me, or even having the experience yourself where you're you're going out with someone and you feel that they're a nice person, but you feel that there's just something missing. And in, in, in the firm world, we call it chemistry. And, you know, in, in, in other places, we call it being attracted to someone. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it, 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 is that something that can grow on you? I mean, I remember that I had heard someone who's, who told their spouse, you know, I was attracted to your inside before I was attracted to your outside. Uh, probably wasn't a very good night. I was for about that, to say, that, and uh, there's the couch. Yeah, yeah okay. right. <laughs> right. <laughs> but but uh, be, being realistic, um, you know, Hazal did say, Hazal's impression of what we talk about, remember, we, look at, we live in such a highly sexually charged society that the 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 concept of chemistry, the concept of intimacy, is has really fallen, you know, can't come into a whole different, totally different category than it was in the past. Chazal do stress the idea that uh, a person shouldn't look at their spouse um, in a certain way, so that that so that they shouldn't see a blemish, and that's on a physical level, but also on an emotional level as well. And I, I think there is what to say with the fact that you know. There's something to say about Tevya and Fiddler on the Roof. There's something to say about arranged marriages that, you know, that, that Baruch Hashem people are very happy because their sense of happiness is based on the reality that they live in. And, and so much of our lives is, we live in a fantasy world. Um, you know, I, I, was just, uh, I was just watching the other day, seeing that, that um, um, there's so many people now involved in, in, in different sports and playing fantasy football and fantasy baseball. We've created a world of fantasy in our minds that has pulled us away from reality. And what that's done is it's, it's caused us to lose out, to lose out on um, not being able to look beyond certain elements that really aren't as important as others. Right. Am I sort of jumping around? No, not at all. Because it, it also not at all. First of all, not at all. I'm cha- tangent queen. But um, but to me, it's all role related topic, which which is something I've discussed before, which is the idea of trading up. We trade up to our new phones. We get it. We only lease a car. We you know and and people rent. They don't buy. And yes, a lot of them are financial decisions. I'm not I'm not going to negate that. But there is a culture of bigger, better thing. There is a culture of not being able to commit and stay committed. Right. When was the last? I mean, uh, when was the last time somebody bought something and didn't try to get rid of it, like immediately or or for whatever reason it is? I mean, right. you know, there's somebody, there are people who joke about their next husband. I don't think that's funny. Right. I don't think it's funny on, by any stretch of the imagination. I don't know why anybody else thinks that's funny. Right. But more than that, there is again, we are part of a culture, and I'm going to <laughs> try and settle down because I find myself getting all riled up about this, but it's something that really irritates me because it's a terrible message that we're sending our kids that there is nothing worth holding on to. There is nothing worth staying with, and it's something I don't understand. Well, part of the problem, I'll be honest, is that I I happen to think that there needs to be more of a responsibility on the part of Rabbanim than on the part of parents. Okay. Um, Making sure that couples are really prepared for marriage, and I know that Shalom Task Force has been doing some great work on premarital, um, uh, one of the things that I do with my couples is not only will I not be a Masada if I don't meet with them four or five times afterwards, but I have follow-up. 
and I say, you've got to come in a month from now, or, you know, uh, it happens to be most of the couples I see when they come, you know, when they come for a yuntif, I see them, you know, they'll call me with questions or whatever else, but then we'll sit down a year after their marriage and say, okay, guys, where are we holding? Right. What's going on? We, you know, and you establish that relationship so that they know that if something goes, you know, if they're having a difficult period of time, bring a third party in, talk to them. You know, there are sometimes that we become so concerned and so overwhelmed about certain things, and it really is something which is natural. It's something which is, which can be worked on. It's something which, you know, that we can get over that little bump. But people, you know, things seem to take on a life of its of of its own when there are problems in marriage, and when people don't turn and get help, or they wait too long to get help, and sometimes when you turn around and get help, it's already wow, the the train has so far lost the station. Miriam, I want to go back to um. Something I said to more about you know humility and being humble. Sure. Um, and and uh, I hope my wife will forgive me. Um, <laughs> but but I but I want to I want to share with you the following. She knows I say, I say it all the time. Okay. Um, I I was a uh, when we got married. Um, I never had a roommate per se. Uh, certainly the guys who I was roommates with were never sensitive sleepers. Most guys are just you know they can sleep through wars. And I remember the first time that my wife said to me. Um, that, you know, when I wake up in the morning to go to Minion, and then I turn on the closet light to go look for the clothes that I want to wear, and then I'm opening up my drawer to take out a pair of socks, right. and then I'm looking for a tie. She says, can't you take your clothes out the night before? And I said to myself, there, was, there, were, there were voices going on in my, you know, in my mind. I said, come on, that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. How do I know what I'm going to feel like in the morning? That maybe I'm going to be in a, you know, maybe it'll be dark outside, and I want to wear a, a black suit, or maybe it'll be, it'll be sunny outside, and I'll still wear a black suit. Right or you know maybe I want to wear my blue suit or, or, or that's not fair. Maybe I'll be in a different mood for a different tie. And and there within itself is sort of the the ego being strained and the that that idea of sort of being humble and humility and and giving to someone else. And I said to myself, you know what? There's a fight inside of me. On the one hand, I got to stick up for myself. I'm not going to be pushed around. No, that's ridiculous. On the other hand, you say to yourself, wait a second. I'm, 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 I'm helping. If this is how my wife sleeps, she feels that I'm waking her up, then what's the big deal for me to take my clothes out and pick it out the night before? Right, it goes a and, long way. And to this day, you know, we're married, Baruch Hashem, 15 years. To this day, when, you know, when I, when I take off my suit one night, you know, at night and put it away, I take out my clothes for the next morning and take it out of the room. And when I wake up in the morning, I get up, I get it, you know, I, I get up and leave the room so that my wife is able to sleep. And that's just an example of where we can take something which is really important for one spouse and seems, you know, at the very beginning of marriage to be ridiculous to another right. spouse and say, well, I could sleep through that. Why can't you sleep through that? And it's something which is so minor in the big picture. And you're able to say, you know what, I'm doing something because I care about my spouse. I want her to be able to sleep. It doesn't matter if she's a sensitive sleeper. The bottom line is this is who she is. And I want to be able to do whatever it is that I can to make her feel more comfortable. And it's a simple adjustment. And so many times in life, you know, we, we end up letting marriage go to places where it's a battle. You did this, so I do that, okay? You took out, you know, you cleaned up from dinner last night, that means I have to clean up from dinner tonight. Or you did this favor for me, so that means you owe me. Right, it's you, a balance sheet. Right, and, and as, soon as, as soon as marriage starts becoming that, we're headed in the wrong direction. We have to continuously think to ourselves, what can I do today to make my spouse's day a better day? What can I do to make my spouse's life better? 
And if we're working our whole lives to ultimately, as my Rebbe Rebbe Willig said, that marriage is the opportunity, the ultimate opportunity to perform chesed. Mm. If, if we're looking at our lives and our marriages as to how do I perform chesed for my spouse, well, I can news for you. Not only will your spouse sense that and perform chesed for you, but your children are going to grow up in a home where they're going to see chesed being performed between their mother and their father, and they're going to understand what it's like to be married. You know, there was this, uh, there was this article that came out from a rove in the Five Towns, a very prominent rove, who said that he felt that one of the reasons that we've had such a high divorce rate in the Frum community, he felt that among the many reasons is that so many kids are out of the house during the high school years. They're dorming, they're, they're just not around, that they don't see their parents interacting, and they don't understand how to be married. Mm. And, and, you know, it's not only to that. But to also be able to see how your parents deal with conflict, right? Of course, right. We're, we're not. We're all right. human beings. We always have. We always have things that we disagree with. We have conflict. There, there are things that we, you know, each spouse. We're all entitled to our own opinion, you know. Um, ultimately, there has to be that that agreement to the bumper sticker, like I mentioned before, Dr. Pelkovitz's bumper sticker. But in the end of the day, what we teach our children is by virtue of our actions. Well, what happens when we have that argument and the kids hear that argument? How do we resolve that? How are we showing the children that we've resolved that? And that goes a long way in creating the next generation of understanding, yeah, marriage is not just fun and games, but the, 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 the goal and, and the end result of marriage is this incredible, emotional, deep bond and connection that you feel that literally lasts a lifetime. It's uh, it's interesting that you say that, and I, I wish I if, – if you could forward me that article, by the way, I would definitely appreciate it. Which one was that? Um, the one from the Rub in the Five oh, Towns yes, we yes, talked yes, about. Yes. about and, yes. and it's it's semi a funny story, and it's – trust me, after 18 oh. years of marriage, it's really only funny in the last three or four. Um, but, but my husband – and I've talked about this before, so I, I, I can't imagine that this is – you know, I wouldn't consider this privileged. But my husband, thank God, grew up in a home – where my in-laws have been together since uh, forever and still look at each other like they were out on their first date. And right. it's really incredibly, incredibly sweet, and they are beautifully in love, and they should be together, you know, at Mayor of Esrim, and, and they should continue this relationship. Well, I can tell you that my in-laws also, when my, my husband was a child, clearly, if they, you know, when they fought, because everyone fights, they didn't make up or they didn't fight either one in front of the kids. And it is something that I always think is important. You know, kids need to see parents argue. Kids need to see parents make up. Kids need to uh, hear the words, I'm sorry, both from their parents and from each other, etc. Like, they need to have normal relationships. They need to see that life goes on after an argument. Right. Well, my husband and I were married about three months where we had a fight. And he looked to me and he said, I guess that's it. I said, what? And he said, well, we had a fight. And it was almost like out of a sitcom. <laughs> and I said, and therefore what? Right. And he said, well, I, I, I guess. And I'm like, Stephen, we had a fight. Married people fight. We're going to make up and we're going to go on. Like it was a it was a skill or an image or a, or a whatever you want to call it that he had not seen because my parent, my in-laws just, I, I, I don't, I honestly don't think that it was a concerted effort not to fight in front of the kids but it just it just didn't happen and speaking to and and so obviously um there have been 
Baruch Hashem, many arguments from then on. Um, and we have more than survived, thank God. But speaking to another friend of mine who grew up in a similar household, she said that her parents Davka never fought in front of the kids because they didn't want the kids to get upset. And I said, but then, and remembering my own experience, I said, then what happens when you and your husband had your first fight? Right. Are you telling me you never fight? She goes, no, we fight all the time. <laughs> and I said, but do you ever fight in front of the kids? And she said that she hadn't really thought about it. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't, but she didn't realize that there was a benefit to actually having a fight or letting something play out. And obviously not until it becomes incredibly volatile. It's not as if every family should have fight night every Tuesday night. No, and there shouldn't be body slams in the kitchen. Right. 100% agreed. But right. there was something to the the eye-opening the, the eye-opening experience of parents having a fight, a husband and wife not agreeing on something, and then the kids seeing the parents 45 minutes later, 15 minutes later, like a half an hour later, moving on. And right. I think and that's a life skill, both between kid and kid, between and as they get older and become adults. Right. When I, when I do the, the premarital work and I say to the couple, when we talk about conflict resolution, and I always say that after every fight, it might not be you know two minutes after, but even if it's... Uh, 12 hours after or a day after, you always have to look back at the fight and say, okay, the argument, and say, what do we learn from here? What do we learn about each other from here? And even if it's a reflection of the individual and say, what did I just learn about my wife? Or what did I just learn about a sensitivity that my husband has that is now going to change or impact the way that I am more sensitive to a given thing in the future? And sometimes it's important to, to share that. Um, and if you if you sort of move on without going back and saying, well, how did this happen in the first place? You know, how did just us disagreeing become into an argument that became into a fight? You know, then you, you, you turn around and you say, well, at least we we looked at what happened, we understood what happened, we're able to grow from that experience, we're able to grow from every experience in life. And um, you know, it, it, the impact of of the pain that we can cause someone during an argument is also significant and making sure that we're really sincere when we apologize and we make amends. So these are all important, you know, important pieces. But not to mention, you know, parent, uh, uh, husband and wife who are uh, children of people, of, 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 of parents who divorced, um, you know, there are many times that they have even stronger marriages than, than people who grew up in a home with, uh, with uh, parents who had a good marriage because they saw how things weren't necessarily resolved. Right. And they make a better effort to, to try to work on things harder. I think one of the most important things that I would like to share is that I think it is so critical to be able to have someone that we can feel as a couple, if need be, you know, whether it's a rogue or it's a mental health professional, to say, you know, we're having a hard time with something. Let's see if we can work on this issue. And we live in a different world. There's nothing embarrassing about it. What's embarrassing is if we end up and uh, continue to fight without doing something about it. You know, as we say in the business, it's the healthy ones that get help. Absolutely. You know, and, and I think that that's, that's also an important piece. I mean, we're, we're, we're moving away from the era of there being a stigma. Stigma, absolutely. And, and more and more to looking at someone and saying, if that person, you know, someone said to me, and I, I get phone calls a lot about Shaduchim, and someone says to me, um, you know, if a, if a person has, I said to someone, I said, you know, if I was told that a boy who was going to be dating my daughter uh, had been in therapy, I wouldn't think negatively about it. If anything, I would think that this, this young man had sat and thought about his thoughts and collected and, and, and thought about his behavior and 
I would think that he did a lot more work than someone who never had been to therapy. Right. So I, I look at that as something being positive, not as being a negative. You're listening to That's Life here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I am joined by Rabbi Eliezer Zwickler, Avat Achim, B'nai Jacob, and David, spiritual leader in West Orange, New Jersey. Also, licensed and clinical social workers. I get that all right? Yes, ma'am. Excellent. Um, <laughs> licensed in the state of New Jersey, marital counselor. Um, anytime you and your wife disagree on the on the handling of a particular client patient um, situation well my wife is not in uh, my wife is not in private practice as of now she's uh, she works for the Jewish family service Got it. Um, so the answer to that is you know is obviously uh, you know right. obviously all my clients and everything is confidential so that's not that's not shared but right but I would say if you brought up and you said well I'm discussing X and Y and not obviously mentioning the person just to bounce it off of her. Has there been a situation where she looks at you and says, you got this all wrong? I would say in general, if we're talking about, let's say, friends, relationships that we see of friends or somebody who talks to us about a given relationship. Um, I, look, I, I learned the most out of the most out of life and the most out of marriage and most out of women for my wife. Mm. Um, you know, and, and uh, of course, that's, you know, that's, that's obviously critical. We, you know, we talk about, you know, potentially when, you know, we're thinking about hypothetical ideas, hypothetical cases. Um, yeah, you know, looking at, at things through different lens, different perspective, and um, you know, you try to be you try to be really sensitive to to both sides. I mean, couples work is is challenging. Um, it's the ability to really be able to have everyone feel that they are being heard, that they're being given a voice. And sometimes, you know, we're in the nature of a relationship. Sometimes we're we're so um, we're, we're so uh, desiring that our spouse hears our point uh, that, to a degree, even though it may not seem that way, we may we may smother their opinion, and they don't get that voice. And that's something which is really important that we give our spouses a chance to talk, and that we're able to understand where they are. You know, it's wow. uh, it, it's <laughs> another OU marriage retreat. Uh, my wife and I actually did a presentation on attentive listening in which we did some role-play, in which we created some scenarios and we did some role-play on how husband and wife end up fighting when they have something which is simple that just becomes a big fight, as opposed to, you know, attentive listening, where basically if I'm speaking to you and, uh, and as I'm talking to you, you know, you make sure that you keep your, your phone away and your gadgets away and right. that you're looking at me in the eyes, and then when I'm finished speaking, you repeat what I say, and then... You know, and then I acknowledge that uh, you got it right, and only then do you respond. And the reason for that is immediately, like right now as we're speaking, the way our brains are working is that you're probably only hearing hearing me with one ear because the other part of you of your thought process is saying, okay, what am I going to say next when he stops talking? And what happens is that when we're when we're in a am relationship. That, am I that transparent? Just tell me. Am I that transparent? <laughs> no, we're over the phone. <laughs> but 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 when in, in the course of a relationship, a husband and wife relationship, so especially if this is you know if we say okay fine let's talk we're going to talk and we're going to figure out you know how we disagreed here and this fight we're going to settle it. So immediately if my wife says you know you're always critical, so okay someone takes a fist and aims it for your face. The first thing you're going to do is you're going to put your hand up to protect your face. So we know where that conversation is going because if I'm going to immediately throw something right at my wife, she's going to get up and she's going to defend it. And so the response that she's going to have is going to be on the defensive as opposed to, you know, making sure that 
um, that my, my wife feels that she's heard and that I feel that I am heard and that we're really listening to each other, not that I'm just speaking up and, mm. and you're just planning what, you're gonna, what your comeback is going to be, but that you're really listening to what I'm saying and that you understand where I'm coming from before responding. Because then, then I'm able to listen to you. If I know that I'm heard, I'm able to hear what you're saying. Mm. Wow. That is, that is unbelievable, Musser. That is really unbelievable, Musser. Let's, let's go back. I mean, I, that's, that's a great, great point. Let's go back a second, though, to the single 30-something-year-old woman who comes into your office, who clearly is, does not need marital counseling but needs marital advice. Right. And she's looking at you, and she's saying, okay, I am ready to commit to someone. Right. What, what happens next? Or where is she going wrong? Or he going wrong? Or whatever. I mean, what is going to happen with that person who... Uh, I, think it, I don't I think, even know what I'm trying to ask you well, in, a think, per, in, a, in a perfect, perfect question. Listen, I, I think that uh, unfortunately what happens is, is that uh, when people date a lot and, uh, and they become older, uh, a lot of people, at least on an emotional level, start to throw in the towel and say, oh, I'm not going to find someone. I'm not going to find the right person. And 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 all of a sudden we become you know our, our, we become tired, and the the passion that we had in in the beginning of the process of dating, and the desire to find that right person who clicks and and the chemistry and everything is there, it sort of gets thrown out the window, because of the fact that we're we're sort of losing that 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 you know that that burning uh, the burning passion, and I think that what has to happen is, is uh, we need to be able to strengthen. Uh, people in that in that position, we need to give them support and say to them, you know that uh, that that you know you you know it's, it's been a challenge. We don't know why it's been a longer challenge for you. And I think that everyone has to do their own sort of cheshbon and nefesh to think about the experiences they've had, to think about the people that they've dated, and and say, look, you know, is there is there something that is is preventing me from committing, for example, or is there something that you know, uh, maybe uh, unconsciously is is causing me not to, um, you know, to take a relationship to the next level. Of, of course, every case and every situation right. is different. Right. And I think that we really need to give them chizuk. We need to give them mm-hmm. encouragement. I think that, unfortunately, what's happened in our schools and our communities also is that older singles feel that everyone's looking at them, that oh. everyone's, that everyone's, you know, sort of saying, oh, Nebuch, this one's not married. And and it's really terrible. It's really terrible. And, and unfortunately, you know, rabbis could talk about that and, and, and people can highlight it. But until we start, you know, treating people uh, differently and making them feel, you know, a part of communities and making them feel wanted and making them feel that they're, that they're important, you know, uh, part of it is the community and part of it is that they themselves sort of feel, you know, get that feeling every time you go to shul and, and uh, you know, you're, 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 you're a single woman in your, your 30s and, and you see girls that you grew up with, you know, who are walking into school with their babies, right. and and you're, you know, sitting there next to your mother. That that's really hard. Ugh. That's really really hard, mm. and it it could send a person for a loop in how the way they feel about themselves. And and we have to find a way to be more encouraging, um, and and to to really support people, whether it's single women, single men, uh, and to to keep on telling them and helping them, you know, to keep on cracking at it, and and hopefully that they will find that, that person that they feel that they can create a bumper sticker with, that they have common goals with, that they can create a dream with and live a life with and, and learn to love. Rabbi Zwickler, we have a couple of minutes left, but I think this is the final question I want to ask you. Okay. 
is there is there still a concept of bashert? Is there still one person out there that you are meant to be with? Or is there a bashert that you can create based upon your different goals, values, or, I, I guess, attitude? Look, I'm not a Kabbalist. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know whose bashert is who. Um, but I do know that HaKadosh Baruch Hu sends us all kinds of challenges in life. And to each of us, it's a different challenge. To, we could look at some people and say, oh, you know, if I had that person's life, life would be so simple. But we don't know what that person's life is like. And we don't know what it's like for them when they look at the mirror before they go to sleep every night. We don't know what internal struggles they go through. And, you know, uh, we look at some couples and we say, oh, look how they get together. Look how they smile at each other. Look how they're so happy. You know, the four walls of my office know a lot. And sometimes when someone comes in and says to me, oh, you see that couple? Look how they smile with each other at Kiddush. I don't say anything, but who knows what's really going on? Right, because they were just in your office an hour ago. Yeah, (laughs) who knows what's really going on? And the bottom line is is that, yes, I believe that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has a plan for every single person. And I don't believe that his plan for people is to live alone and to be alone in their life. Does it mean that only after X amount of years will I see that this person is my Bashert? That could be. Does it mean that all of a sudden I'm going to be on a date and I'm going to look into this girl's eyes, or I'm going to look into this guy's eyes and say, wow, you're my Basharat, we're meant for each other? Or does it mean that, hey, I'm just really not sure, and all of a sudden, 12 years after we're married, over the course of time, we're getting closer and closer, and I turn around and I look at our children, and I look at our family, and I say, wow, you know, we were really meant for each other, and I wouldn't have known it, but for some reason, Hashem put us, two of us together. So I guess my answer to your question is really a little bit of both. Mm. You know, uh, is, is love at first sight? Well, maybe Hashem puts our bashert as love at first sight. But there's also, I believe, the bashert that uh, bashert is meant to be. Mm. And there's a reason why Hashem makes us cross paths with certain people in our lives. I will tell you that there was a couple who recently got married. I would call them an older couple. The girl was, I think, uh, 32, 33. <laughs> and the boy was also a similar age. And she had been single for, for, for quite a while, and she had a very hard time. And they got married. And they had previously dated about seven years earlier. And the boy gets up at his l'chaim, and he says, and I unfortunately had a wedding at the same time, I couldn't go to l'chaim, but I heard it, b'shem amro. And he said, you know how they say b'sha'a tova? Right. He said, this is b'sha'a tova. Hmm. For some reason, seven years ago was not b'sha'a tova. It wasn't the right time. We weren't the same people then as we are today. And I thought that was so incredibly Powerful. Wow, unbelievable. That we continue to grow as individuals each and every day. And, and even, even if we've lived a certain period of time in which we haven't met the right person, quote the right person, and we think to ourselves, look, it could be tomorrow. We say, Yeshua of Hashem, Keherifayin. The Yeshua of Hashem, you know, God's redemption could happen in the blink of an eye. Right. And when people come into our lives, we have to think twice about why Hashem brings them into our lives. And even if we don't necessarily say, I, I could never picture myself with this person, who knows? Maybe there's a reason why Hashem put the two of you together. Rabbi Zwickler, I thank you so much for your time. Um, this has been an absolutely incredible hour. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule. Rabbi Zwickler can be reached at um, at the shul, I guess is the best way of saying it. Well, Not- reach at, at, uh, my, my email address is ezwickler at gmail.com. Ezwickler at gmail.com. E-Z-W-I-C-K-L-E-R. Better than, better than calling you at shul. No problem. Ezwickler <laughs> at gmail.com. Again, 
Rabbi Eliezer Zwickler, thank you so, so very much. I appreciate Pleasure. it. Pleasure. Thank you, Miriam, and a Gemar Tov, uh, and a good Yantav to everyone, all your listeners. Thank you. You too. Well, we are very much out of time, and I wish I could go through today's lineup because it's phenomenal, but I just want to make sure to point out that Spin Class, with our post-election roundup, and a yeshukayach to Michael Fragan on the uh, Loda campaign as they won the primary, nom- the uh, Republican nomination. So you definitely do not want to miss that. You don't want to miss J.M. and A.M. tomorrow morning. As Nahum speaks to Malcolm, and we hear all about Syria and all about President Obama's speech this week, a gmar tov to absolutely everyone. My thanks as always to Avrami. A chag sameach for those of you going to Israel. Have the privilege of living there. I'm always, always jealous of you for that. We are going to we are going to uh, end today with Yosef Karduner's Atatzat Sliach. My best wishes to everyone for a Gmar Chatima Tova. That's life, everybody. Bye, guys. Thank <laughs> you.